Hi, and welcome back. This is part two of the interview with Professor Howard Williams on The Dig. I think the first thing that I just want to say before we dig all the way into the dig um, is I love the landscape shots. You know, it really gives you a sense of where it is in England. Did you want to start with sort of where the film starts, where it ends? Yeah. So the, let me tell you about the film then. Yeah. The film is based on a book by John Preston, and therefore it's a film about a book about a real life event. It's not trying to show you what actually happened. I know even some archaeologists I've seen seem to be struggling with this. I mean, it is just a film. OK, but it's it's based on a book that was written by the nephew of one of the, the people in the original 1939 excavation team, uh, Peggy Piggott who appears in the film. And so it's a fictional account and it includes a few fictional people who didn't exist, as well as named historical personages in the story. And we, the, the film, in short, takes you on a very slow, beautiful, touching ride from Basil Brown arriving on site on his bicycle, be meeting Edith Pretty, being shown the burial mounds. They have an interaction. They find a rapport, realising she's not just interested in finding treasure. She's interested in something else we're not told what something else is it's left ambiguous but she wants she has a feeling about the burial mounds she wants to find the burial mounds and it's left unsaid but it's quite clear that she is a widow she's lost her husband her husband was a, a colonel i think in the british army and she's from an aristocratic family but she's got a young child she gave birth in her late 40s or early 50s i think in at that time no no yeah she was very you know for that age she had a young boy her father died when her boy was only four and there she was on her own. And these burial mounds fixated her. And we're left ambiguous. But I think you were supposed to make a connection between her loss, her personal loss, and trying to connect to the burial mound. And I think that's really touching. Anyway, Brown goes out there, starts to dig. It conflates two years. It doesn't show 38, 39. It just shows 39. He digs not one barrow. He's disappointed with the results. Why he's disappointed with the results, I don't know. But he's made out, oh, he expected to find more than this. And he's all upset. And then he digs at the big barrow mound one. And he finds the ship. And then posh people come along and go you can't do this and chuck him off the dig he rides off but he'd made a promise to the little boy Edith Pretty's son that he would finish the job and he and he goes back and he he helps and stays with it and we're taken on the story through the coroner's inquest up to the backfilling of the graves and the story of that summer along the way there's fictional event a spitfire crashes next door and there's um into the river sorry um, and and there's there's a love interest between the female archaeologist and the the nephew of Edith Pretty, which is just an added thing and there's no real evidence for, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, the main story is the relationship between Pretty and Brown. And this film is about their non-amorous connection between her as a woman who's lost her husband and a young boy and this rather taciturn archaeologist who's not really trained, a bit uh, grumpy, who just digs holes and he finds something spectacular. And there's no baddie. The closest thing we have to a baddie is Charles Phillips, who's portrayed 30 years older as a big, pompous academic who wants to grab this treasure for himself. But he's not. He's, he's actually, his interest is making sure it's safe in a museum and it's researched. Uh, but obviously they try to portray, oh, these posh boys from Cambridge. And yeah, that was a genuine dynamic. That wasn't made up, but it's obviously you know, polarised in the film. But it's a lovely film that takes us on that journey of a famous discovery, the characters involved, 
and um and it really is just a, a joy to watch and a sad a sad joy to watch <laughs> the landscape though the landscape's absolutely integral and they've it's not accurate to the site the topography is wrong for the film and location they couldn't film at Sutton Hoo because it's a visitor center and uh, but they give a sense of burial mounds. They've reconstructed burial mounds. You've shown the River Deben, this estuary. You get a sense of England. You get a sense of a sort of an English countryside, a pre-war English countryside. There are fighters flying over, training for a potential war. You see soldiers mobilising. She's going to London. So you get the sense that this is not too far from a railway station. She's going to London to get specialist tests for her, her, her medical condition. But you see a rural England and the skies, the estuary, the relationship of the burial mounds to the river. It's all beautiful. It's wonderful. And th I've picked out quibbling errors with it in my blog post on Archeodeath. But uh, and I don't. And one of the key things was, of course, that Edith Pretty's house was in eyesight of the burial mounds. And they can't reproduce that in the film, which I thought was a, a minor uh, disappointment and they make the mounds a little too big because they really were denuded and, and if you go to the site now they really are low they've made them a bit too big for the film audience so that people have a, a sense of why they are so important but they weren't quite as big as they're shown in reality they're, they're smaller but it's a wonderful landscape and you said some of the characters were fictional and some were real historical people so what did you think of their portrayal? Were they similar to what you know about, um, you know, Basil Brown and Edith? And... I mean, I think the, the portrayal, um, Ray Fines as Basil Brown is wonderful. His accent, his gait, his manner, all chime. I mean, I don't, we don't know a massive amount about the man, but we know quite a lot. And it, yeah, it, it's perfect. As good as you could get, really. Edith Pretty as a posh widow, played by Carrie Mulligan, brilliant performance but um Carrie is 22 years too young and she pulls it off and and sh she's a wonderful screen presence but a little too young but and the problem I have with two of the other characters is Stuart Pickett Stuart Pickett was 29 he goes on to become professor of archaeology at Edinburgh one of the most eminent archaeologists of the of, of Scottish and British prehistory and he's portrayed as by a 50 year old a Ben Chaplin who's a wonderful actor and looks very young um but there's that aspect they also portray him as extremely gay which probably is there's a whole story that i don't want to go into but and the idea but that's set up in a very ham-fisted way i think whatever his personal life was the idea is that's why his wife isn't interested in him and they don't have really so she has a an affair with this other dude and that's all made up as far as we know and he yeah, so archaeologists seem to be most annoyed about um, Peggy Piggott's representation because as a young female archaeologist, she is a bit of an icon and, and, and a bit of a history, you know, an important figure in the development of archaeology. She was working at a time when women couldn't get a degree in archaeology, <laughs> um, men only. And so a lot of expectations were on how she would be portrayed. And I think some of my archaeology colleagues are pretty disappointed, not so much for the film, but just about what this, the broader a message this sends out i mean i thought actually it was either some people i agree with some people say it's a bit superfluous she wasn't the interest it was really about brown and pretty we want to see and i thought she was great actually and i but i um i will be castigated for saying that but I, I do think she was great and she was shown finding the gold she found the first gold and that was shown she was found finding the moss to pack the finds that's shown she has so many different subtle roles in it she's not just a love interest character she's shown as an intelligent able up-and-coming young archaeologist who has a pivotal role in the story of the discovery 
I mean, yes, and there are issues. She um, she is perhaps um, apologetic for her presence and uh, sexist comments are made against her, which is about revealing the sexism of the males of the time. But she isn't shown in a bad light by that, in my view. I think she's shown as having to deal with that circumstance and taking what I, you know, if someone said that to my wife, I would, there would be blows. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, she isn't like that, <laughs> says the inept husband, you know, doesn't stand up for her against the comment. You know, and it's I, that annoyed me. But I, so I think there's some things, obviously, it's not really about them. It's a story. You know, it's about the, the site and the story of its discovery. And Brown and Pretty's relationship is the key thing. So for me, I loved it. And I thought it was a great film. Uh, you know, there's a few stereotypes involved. There's a few historical personages I wish hadn't been shown the way they were. But frankly, I think it's it's pretty good. It's very good. Yeah. And, we've got, and what else have we got it to compare against? And the mum. The Mummy too. You know, Basil Brown isn't shown having to escape the British Museum, shooting mummies with a shotgun and riding a Routemaster bus that wasn't even in service till 1968, supposedly in 1933. I mean, we have a very low, you know, I have a very low expectations for the portrayal of archaeologists and archaeology in film. Anything's better than that. And they've done very well. They've reconstructed the excavation exceptionally well. They've reconstructed the costumes. I've seen pedantic comments. The trowels are the wrong size and the crash Spitfire's gun sight is the wrong kind for 1939. And oh, the Hawker Hawker Hurricanes were stationed at RAF Martlesham Heath. Um, it wasn't Spitfires. And it's like, oh, really? You know, this is a film set in 1939 telling a fantastic story. And of course, it, it's not the way exactly it was. But the key things that are accurate. They discovered a ship burial that was exceptional. There was a takeover of the site by archaeologists. And to be candid, it's a story to celebrate the underdog of Brown as the amateur and to celebrate Edith Pretty and her generosity as a, an old dying woman giving an exceptional find to the British Museum for free. You know, and I think that is the they're the heroes that the National Trust wants us to remember, the British Museum wants us to remember, and the story that touches everyone's hearts. And the, the love affair and the, the dashing pilot-to-be and whether he'll come back from the war or not is, is kind of who cares, you know. So that's the story everyone loves, and I think that's the story that's going to make this a real classic film and, and a new, hopefully, a new benchmark for archaeological films. <laughs> that you know, we, the expectation of actually showing archaeologists, we are cool and sexy, of course, uh, but showing us in a nuanced historical light there's at least finally we've got there so i think there's so much to be celebrating about that picking holes in the a few errors of the film are, are not really important it's a film about mortality and, and and the anxieties of the future as well as the past about a society just on the brink of war and people who are not going to be around much longer trying to struggle to make sense of their world and things like that i think that's what's really wonderful about it as you said this is a very different kind of archaeological film so looking from an archaeologist's perspective, what were some of the things that they showed really well about the profession? And what were some of the things that you're a little disappointed that they, they weren't able to add? What I thought was really well was they portrayed the concern that Pretty had that these were burial mounds. She knew they were burial mounds. Brown tells her at the beginning of the film they're burial mounds. And I like the way that that is a problem for her. And this seems to be it's not it's not made clear. She doesn't say I'm giving this to the British Museum because these were buried with the dead. But there's this wonderful scene where she's saying, am I doing the right thing? Um, you know, this, these were in a man's grave. And that's the point. It's like a husband's grave. That's the whole point you're supposed to be driven. She's thinking about this as a, as a burial deposit. And given that the media at the time, the media today, still obsessed with monetary value of archaeological objects, 
discovery, bling, treasure. The film doesn't allow you to come away thinking this is a quest for gold. It shows you a woman who has made a decision to commission an archaeologist, has bitten off more than she can chew, and is facing a dilemma about her legacy, her relationship with her dead husband, her relationship with her son. And it's not, this is never played out. This is my inference, okay? And what does she do with this early Anglo-Saxon burial context? You're shown Brown, who bit off more than he can chew. If Phillips hadn't taken over that dig, he would have been stuffed. We would have had no decent record. Brown's 1938 records are a trash. And everyone said, no, no, he was great as an archaeologist. No, he wasn't. He's working almost in a 19th century fashion. He trained himself to do basic little plans, but he, he was out of his depth. And if he'd been left doing that on his own, we would have had a mess and it would have been castigated. And Brown's reputation would have been disastrous. The Ipswich Museum's reputation would have been disastrous. So whatever you make of the posh archaeologists coming in from the universities and much as uh, that kind of snobbery I still face today as someone who's first generation at university. So I've, I'm very sympathetic with Brown bit of nuance so but i like the way they show the dynamic between the archaeologists the tensions the class differences they so they show a woman bitten off more than she can chew but amateur archaeologist bitten more than she can chew the pomposity of the incoming team but also the eclecticism of the incoming team all of that was wonderfully done the dig itself was portrayed marvelously her decisions she calls it treasure but she says for me the ship is the biggest treasure the greatest treasure, not the biggest, it's not physical side, but she understands that it's the burial is the treasure, not the precious object. So that's a bit anachronistic, but she's shown as enlightened, sensitive, understanding of what she's done and trying to do the right thing with this archaeological find that is gone global in terms of the news in 1939, or at least gone national, you know, it was famous. We also show what's also wonderful is the way they show the excavation. They don't spend much time on the excavation. That's annoyed a lot of people, but I like that. They don't show the objects as the focus. We've shown actually most of the objects. They commissioned exact replicas from um, goldsmiths and artisans. They look wonderful and they have and you see them. You don't see the helmet because it didn't exist yet. It hadn't been reconstructed. And to be honest, some of the other objects, if they tried to get replicas, age them, it would have been embarrassing and expensive. I mean, a large section of the budget, if they tried to share the cauldron or the chain work for the cauldron or the um, the massive silver dish. And if it was going to look legit for a film, it would have cost a pretty penny, even in pewter or some replica. No, they had to focus on the small objects and they didn't make them the deal. This was about the people and their discovery, their tensions, their relationships and their decisions and their relationship with mortality. This was not shown about hoiking out the treasure, taking it to the museum. And even Charles Phillips says, well, the key thing is, he has a line about, the key thing is what happens to the treasure. But he doesn't want the treasure for any, for his reputation, yes, but he wants the treasure for the nation. No one is shown to be a greedy, treasure-grabbing character. And so that is wonderful. Everyone cares about doing their best in difficult circumstances. War's coming. They know the clock is ticking. They've got to get this out before the excavations are closed down. The younger men are called up. The world is turning and they need to get this done. So I think it's wonderful human story. Oh, human, I sound like a film critic. Human story. You know, it's, it, it's a wonderful story of people in very difficult circumstances, very different agendas, but all agreeing that this is not about monetary gain. And I think that's a wonderful lesson when so much of our heritage is under threat from ignorance, through deliberate damage, from treasure hunters, 
um, we still have this problem today. We have a massive metal detecting issue. And while most metal detectorists are responsible, we know ha we're having sites ripped apart, looted every summer. And it's a big problem on a massive scale. And we should not pretend it isn't. And therefore, this story, is, it's a moral one. So those are the reasons why I liked it as an archaeologist. But you also wanted to know what I didn't like, didn't you? Well, and I was thinking how they portray a dig to go. Is that actually similar to how a dig in that time would have happened? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a mess. I mean, uh, as Charles Phillips said, reflecting in 1970, it was a very most British fashion. It was everything was played by ear. It was done. It was a mess. And they, but they did the best they could under the circumstances. And um, it was shown accurately. Yes. There were very few people involved. They shifted a massive amount of soil. Um, they were excavating a burial. The only thing I really criticise, I, I don't like the fact they didn't show a sense of the burial chamber, uh, the edges of the burial chamber. We only see individual objects coming out. And I think that was irresponsible. I think they should have had at least two, three second shot showing something of the relationship between these finds. And that would have helped really project the point. This is a burial chamber, not just a, a random collection of objects. But everything else is as near as perfect. I've seen archaeologists, as I said, criticise the trowels, or maybe there's, I thought the actual ship was a little too shallow from the excavation shots. I thought it was about two foot deeper um, than, uh, it was too shallow. Um, in reality, the excavation trench was deeper. But, you know, these are quibbles. I mean, it, they put a lot of effort into making it look like, all oh, the soil isn't sandy enough for the, for the actual site. Now, I've dug on the site, I can talk about that later. But yeah, it's really sandy. But, you know, these, this doesn't matter to the viewer. The viewer gets the key story about what archaeological excavations were like at the time. So what were the parts that you thought could have maybe had a better lens or, you know, maybe handled better? OK, so I mean, I think I've really said them. I'll just go over them again. But I think they should have shown a bit more of the burial context. Some of the non-precious finds, such as the ironwork, the iron standard research shown being lifted. But we're not shown any story about them. We're not really shown um, any of the other exciting finds that are not precious. So I think that would have really ramped up the story and made it better. I would have also liked to have seen uh, a little bit more. I expected the film to end with the stuff going to the British Museum and going to the underground. That would have been a very evocative sort of the, the reinterment. So I'd have missed that. I thought ending with the backfilling of the grave and the, the fires just going off made me sad, but it did keep it with the people. Uh, I suppose that was fine. No, I mean, I think those are the main things. I thought the burial mounds were just too big. And so the whole thing about Basil Brown being buried alive by the sand slump just couldn't have happened like that. He was, it was, it was dangerous. Uh, but it was never so high. So they've enhanced the height of mound three by about three, four foot, I think, to make it more monumental than it is. And they are big mounds, but they're heavily levelled by agriculture and a thousand, fifteen hundred years. So um, I thought that was a bit annoying. But I mean, who cares as a, as a viewer? Oh, the film's ruined now. That weed is in the wrong place. And I, I, earthworms like that, you know, don't, you know, it's ridiculous. No, there's nothing. There's nothing really that ruins the film at all. It's wonderful. And I think these are things that only an archaeologist would care about. And indeed, some of the fixation with are, are these actual historical persons shown in the right light? I mean, actually, it doesn't matter. It happens all the time. And I think we just have to relax a bit about things like that. Um, so I my main problem is, actually, if you want to find one other problem, it's because they can't film at anywhere with the same topography. The topography of something who is so unique, it's not dramatic, but it's subtle. But when you go there, it's a special place. It's on a ridge line. The ground falls off to the west. They can't emulate that. If they filmed in such a location, in reality, to film it, they'd have two problems. A, um, 
there'd be some other landscape feature that would you know take away and they'd be able to see houses or pylons they had to have a lower location where they had a screen of trees in the right place but the burial mounds aren't prominent because otherwise you'd have all the modern landscape affecting it wherever they went in britain um so i think they did the best they could but one has to be aware the burial mounds are less impressive but the landscape context is more impressive in the real world situation that's really interesting because just in general i thought the landscape was very striking so i love how they did still give you that impression that the mounds were still striking to some degree oh yes yeah oh, it was a really good job yeah yeah i just these are niggles you know not big issues you know and i guess i have a bit of a question too so you had mentioned earlier in the, the real sutton who um how some of these objects were broken up so do we know if they were broken up on purpose or just broken up because of the soil content? That's a very good question. I mean, the whole conservation process has emerged assuming that these objects have been intact in the first place. And we do have other periods and places where ritual killing of objects takes place, including in early Anglo-Saxon England. We have evidence of swords, spears and uh, knives in particular, having evidence of breakage and bending in funerary ritual. But no actually there's i don't think i'm trying to think and maybe i'm gonna kick myself after this interview i don't think there's any demonstrable evidence of deliberate breakage the problem is that objects such as the famous helmet are so fragmentary and from the collapse and decay of the burial chamber that everyone's assumed they were intact in the first place and we wouldn't know if there was a massive hole hacked through one of them by a spear you know of the helmet um or not uh so unfortunately we i have to say no it looks like they buried the objects whole and as they've been used in life but uh, decayed through time uh, that's what it seems to be anyway yeah that's really interesting i always wonder that as the the people who are burying somebody if they do have the sort of the ritual killing of objects because it does happen across the board sometimes. i mean they're ritually killing the animals and one of the interesting things about sutton who is in the big anastasia's dish they did have burnt bone but they couldn't tell whether it was human or animal and so we have the possibility that people will still will have never really properly developed. We're so obsessed with this being the burial of Raedwald, king of the East Angles, that we still have the possibility that this was a burial chamber for two people. Everyone assumes the whole burial is a male assemblage, but actually only the weapons are perhaps exclusively male gendered. And the buckets, um, buckets are a male gendered object. Don't seem like, you wouldn't say, well, why is a bucket? In, in terms of other burials, buckets are found with male gendered weapon burials okay everything else is either exceptional or could be associated with potentially any male or female assemblage in fact we have buckets and very high stages seventh century female burials actually so i should correct myself but my point is that we are so fixated with who is he who is the man in the burial chamber that actually we could make an argument there was one principal male centrally placed occupant and there could have been multiple some cremated or some inhumed other individuals in that burial space but we wouldn't honestly know because of the destruction and i mean just even uttering this in a podcast will lead some scholars to scoff um but that scenario has never been properly argued through and for a time the case was even made that maybe the the ashes in that bowl were the, the main occupant uh, you know was like a cremation but i think we have the possibility not necessarily of that being the main occupant there probably was a burial in the space where there were, a body could be imagined 
but there may have been other burials around that chamber. We don't know. It could have been a family burial group with multiple children, but if not, you know, buried in cinnery urns, you know, where the perhaps the bones will be protected, then we're not going to have that evidence surviving given the soil conditions. So it may not be who is he, but who were they? Or even who was she? If there was a, <laughs> God, someone's going to pull me apart for that one. But I mean, there is an argument to be made that multiple individuals in, the, in that grave. What's really interesting about the rest of the burial site is there's only one possible female gendered individual, Mound 14, excavated by Martin Carver. It was one of the barrows I helped dig when I was a student. Um, and that had evidence of a girdle hanger and other objects that um, might be argued to be a, bits of a bed that might be a female gendered bed burial. But it was robbed in the 16th, 17th century, and then, you know, the excavations found of a fragmentary remains. But there, there's only evidence of one female gendered burial on the site of a, in the Big Barrow. So it's intriguing. And then, of course, there's the woman with the man in Mound 4. Um, so there's females there. So why can't we have, imagine a female, a part of that burial assemblage? It reminds me a lot of, um, in the Norse archaeology, how in, I think it was in 2017, it was finally determined that this you know warrior burial which had been thought to be male due to weapons and such came back <laughs> it's female yeah, yeah so it turns you on your head right on on the concepts we had so who knows yeah i mean yeah while i have entered that debate about bj581 i think the point i would agree with the authors of that paper on i wouldn't agree with everything they say but i agree with is that we've got to reevaluate our presumptions on these assemblages. And actually the parallel actually with both burials is there's very few male, they say the entire assemblage of BJ581, which is 10th century and four, four and a half centuries later, and not, not relevant to this discussion, but it's an analogy, it's a parallel. Oh, it's all male, they say in that. Group. Actually, what is all male? With this, with Sutton Who, Mound One, a lot of those objects could have been wielded, worn, carried by a woman including drinking horns including the amazing which i didn't even talk about earlier the amazing pair of auroch horns you know i mean why is that a male thing a lot of those objects you can imagine in a hall setting being women's duties and roles and associations because they're aristocratic objects you know they're high status objects so i think yes you're absolutely right there's so much assumption there and uh yeah that's an interesting story i'm not gonna say i hope someone doesn't hear this and say mound one was a woman but go on do it go and say that and then and we can have an argument about it. but but at least you'd have thought someone would have put that idea forward to challenge our preconceived ideas um you know <laughs> or at least multiple individuals uh, well i'm definitely not an archaeologist but i always wonder if some of these objects are even uh, ancestral you know like somebody's dad had this or whatnot because we tend even now tend to love those ancestral connections I mean, certainly they've been passed hand to hand. I mean, some of the gold work looks brand new, but some of it, uh, the helmet is from southern Scandinavia and it must be at least 50 years old, we think. So, you know, these objects would have been around, valued, circulated, maybe given and received. The other thing to get away with, just like we talk about the biological identity of the early English is a real mixed mess of native Britons and incoming Germanic immigrants from various different tribal groupings or conglomerates just like mound one it is a mess it's a it's a mess of different influences so this is very much almost like um someone like anyone today you know you're dressed in in, in jeans that have one origin of influence you may have a jump with a logo from another country you may have headphones with another logo from another country and you know this this grave is a, a mix a melange of different influences that have come from different parts of the their known world 
And whoever was wearing this was dressing to be different. No one else had the helmet just like that or a sword just like that, even though there were other swords and other helmets. You know, so it's about standing out, about being different. And I think the burial is very much about that. And I always love how burials give us a scope of mercantilism, you know, the merchant trading that was happening. Because a lot of people think, oh, back then, quote unquote, they lived in a small town. They didn't really do much. They kind of just somehow lived their lives in a very boring way. But all of these disprove that, right? It seems like there was a lot more to that. Yeah, we've got a lot more evidence. I mean, we know that the fifth century was a time of massive dislocation. And anyone that tells you otherwise and tries to say that it was a lovely time to live and the Roman Empire just decided not to happen anymore and everyone was much better off um, is, is, a, is a delusional um, pseudo archaeologist, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I have some sympathy with a more nuanced view of the fifth, sixth centuries as a time of, of transformation and reorganisation, political fragmentation. It wasn't all bad. And of course, we have to constantly rile against the dark age cliche. This was a time of barbarians and stuff. But I'm sorry, the time was a mess. And it was, you know, you can't argue just because people were still farming the land that everything was hunky dory. And those listening to this will know exactly what I'm talking about in some of the recent textbooks that have been coming out trying to write out the fifth century as a time that was a dramatic down change in urbanization ended in Britain and Northwestern Europe. You know, we see at the end of a long distance trade and economy. But we do have evidence of ongoing connections, trade and maritime connections. So, you know, I mean, the quote from the film when Charles Phillips realizes he's got Merovingian tremises in the burial chamber, you know, um, Frankish coins minted from all over Francia, he goes, this is Anglo-Saxon because he thought it was Viking. This is Anglo-Pigot, Grimes, it's Dark Age by Jupiter, which is so funny. Sixth century, this changes everything. These people were not just marauding barterers, they had culture, they had art, they had money. And I thought, oh, that's so painful. And yet I cringed and yet it did encapsulate what Sutton who did to the archaeological world in thinking about early Anglo-Saxon society. And so cliche though it may be, I thought, it encapsulated it. This is a Germanic speaking world with North Sea contacts, contacts to the Frankish world, but they weren't a backwater. They had the connections, they had the knowledge, they knew about Christianity, but hadn't accepted it yet. They were part of a changing world. And I think that despite so many changing theories and ideas, I think that quote still resonates to this day, despite it making me cringe. In a very simple level, it encapsulates what Sutton Hoo did in 1939 and in the decades afterwards for our understanding of the period and why The Dig is a film. It does capture that. And that's great. And I guess I'd love to go into um, sort of the third part of the podcast, which is your personal experience. I actually contacted you because you had mentioned in the first episode we ever did that you were at Sutton Hoo. Yeah, I mean, I was I was pre pre university and I'd finished my A levels and I was looking. So I was 18. Was I 18? I may have been 18 somewhere around then. I'm trying to work out with 18 or 19. Um, yeah, but I I decided to apply to go as a volunteer on an excavation. And I joined. Um, it wasn't my first excavation. It's my second excavation. I dug at Rochester, Roman City. That's my first one. Sutton Hoo was um, really hard for me as an asthmatic 18 year old. Uh, very difficult social. Like, all digs are really tough socialising and most university students find it really hard. I found it really hard. I had the crappiest camping equipment. I had the thinnest uh, and it was getting into late August and it was getting really cold at night. And I was in two jumpers and with 
know, pants over my head to keep my ears warm and hats and, you know, I was freezing all night, you know, and, and I was working so hard on that dig because it was a difficult sandy soils. I had a supervisor who was a slave driver. He couldn't understand why we couldn't move them out of soil he wanted us to move. And that's not the first time I had that. And it was really a, a challenging time. But it was a good time. I met some really great people. And like all digs, you meet some some not so great people. Um, and it was Martin Carver's, I think, uh, 1991 season. And it was really, really good and uh, really fun. And I'd help excavate Mound 6 at Sutton Who, help excavate Mound 14. And I left. My time at there ended just before while they were digging Mound 17's horse and weapon burial. But I didn't get to see that. I only found about, saw it in current archaeology a few months later when they had photographs. I was sieving the soil from the two pits. And then later I realised what they'd found. Um, so I got to dig with Helen Geek, uh, who was there as a volunteer too, who went on to be a very eminent archaeologist. Now, uh, she's been running as a Green MP for Burris and Edmonds, I think. Uh, it was the last time I saw her. I'd, but she's also associated with Cambridge University. And, um, you know, it was Martin Carver was there, Madeleine Humler, and uh, really good people. Chris Newsell, who's now Professor of Archaeology at Bordeaux. He was there as a postgraduate student I think at the time um, Chris and uh, yeah there were some really fun people there and I did find I have a one tiny claim to fame which I think I mentioned before was I did find a golden garnet bead there that was um, probably missed by Basil Brown's excavations and uh, I remember finding it and the neighbouring person picked it up and then Carver waltzed over uh, as he does a very tall imposing man he picked it up and went ah Basil Brown <laughs> uh, meaning in his mind he was thinking this was on the spoil heap site next to brown's excavations about three and four and could this have been there for one of the finds that he missed in his excavation so you know, there's that possibility so i enjoyed it i enjoyed it but um well, i've looked back i've just found my photographs as i took at the site and they're rubbish photographs they don't tell me anything about the site they're useless photographs because it's such a flat boring site to look at you need the proper aerial shots and the, the the archaeological drawings the visualization it's not imposing it's really dull to look at and, and i realized my own photographs are just not good enough to capture the nature of the topography the nature of the mounds which are very low and so like a lot of archaeology a lot of funerary archaeology it's a site where you have to use your imagination to realize what lies beneath what what's there what stories we can tell it's not in your face and while we have a wonderful iconic sutton new helmet the story of Sutton Hoo is so much more than the bling and the individual objects. It's the story of layer upon layer, sand and dirt, of bits of almost shadows of bodies. It's a site of hauntings in some ways. And in fact, the whole film is about ghosts and haunting, but it doesn't say explicitly this sense of being sort of haunted by presence of the burial mounds and wanting to find out more. And the site still haunts us because no, very little bone survived the soil. So we, we still can't, like so many bog bodies are capture the imagination because we've got all the flesh still we've got the expression sometimes ghastly sometimes peaceful um skeletons we can touch a sense of you know the past through looking at the bones so much like ours and imagine the flesh that was on them and imagine the expressions and the coughing and the laughter and the drinking and the all the things that person did you know we can wrap that around the bones but here at Sutton Hoo we're haunted by these wonderful finds but where was the body you know the that absence and I think that that's why the site is evocative. It's not evocative because we have all the answers and everything was so amazingly well preserved. It's a site that captures the imagination because we have tantalising clues as well as sort of um, 
frustrating absences, sort of with sort of haunting shadows. That's a bit too over the. But I, that's the way I feel about the site, and so that, and, I, and I felt that when I was a student. I mean, at the end of the dig, every week they'd sleep on the mounds. Uh, people would go out of their sleeping bag because my sleeping bag, for the simple practical reason, I didn't do it. It was not any spiritual. Well, I might get haunted. Um, but because I my sleeping bag was so crap, if I slept on the mounds, I would be probably frozen by morning. Um, but no, everyone, a lot of the, the diggers all went and had slept on the mounds and had a bit of. And there was that sense of not in a jokey way, in the sense that there was something special about the place. And I, I'm not saying everyone was spiritual about it, but I think there is just something that did haunt everyone even on that dig back in 1991. I think it does still. It's been with me the rest of my archaeological career. And um, it's a different kind of haunting when you see the later execution graves, because the site seems to have been used as a place of killing um, people after Christian conversion. And that's another story. And um, but it is a very, very evocative site. If anyone gets a chance to visit after lockdown, Sutton Who, put it on your list, on your bucket list, as the phrase goes, isn't it? You know, put, put it on that list. I was really interested. You've mentioned soil quite a few times. So like the sandy soil you said was acidic and it would have chewed through things. And then the lower levels where you had the horse and the bones, those were better preserved? It's really local, very. It seems to be some of the burials had bits of bones still surviving. And I think um, it's a lot of micro variables in the soil chemistry. And some of the bones preserved because it's in a micro environment in reaction with some of the uh, metal work. I don't understand all of the, the process involved. I won't try and on a podcast pretend to be an archaeological soil scientist. All I would say is that there is a lot of one of the reasons why the, the body may have completely gone in mound one is because there would have been pooling of water there. So as well as it being acidic like the rest of the uh, soil, there may have been a particular pooling effect in that location that made it almost impossible for bone to survive. That's the scenario that the archaeologists have argued for. So it would have varied very subtly between different uh, different places on the site. But nowhere is the bone well preserved. And they also mention uh, rabbits in the film. So that I found fascinating for somebody who's not from the UK. Can you explain? Rabbits everywhere. And when I'm on the dig, you couldn't drive on the lane at night without accidentally killing at least two or three. I mean, I, I wasn't driving, but I mean, you could see the headlights, it's rabbit, 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 running away from the car. It's populated, Sandy Hill, and they may have actually planted them there and farmed them there in, um, from the Middle Ages because it's so rabbit friendly. So they were using them as pillow mounds. Yeah. So rabbits everywhere on there, on that, that sandy landscape. Yeah. And do they burrow all the way down to a site usually? Yeah, they do go through. They mess things up. They didn't seem to have got deep enough to, they wouldn't have gone deep enough to get at the uh, burial chamber, but they would have been a problem for the superficial, uh, the few feet at the top of the, the mounds. Yeah. Yeah, but damage. At least they didn't have badgers, which is another major problem for archaeological excavations um, on sites. And many an archaeological site is damaged by badgers. I love badgers. Farmers don't like them. Uh, and there's a big debate about animal conservation and the exchange of TB, tuberculosis uh, into cattle. But uh, and badgers are cute and they've got lovely, lovely bouncy bottoms as they sort of go along and they eat slugs and they're cool. Uh, but they're quite big animals and they make massive burrows and sets. Is it sets or is that foxes? I get forgetting stuff. Um, I'll probably get corrected now by somebody. If one thing comes out of this podcast, they'll be you'll be inundated with emails correcting my <laughs> my mammalian terminology for burrowing animals. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> you know, they they're lovely, but they they cause colossal damage to archaeological sites. But rabbits can be pretty damaging, and uh, unless they're controlled, they are a massive problem to archaeological conservation. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's really fascinating. Um, we have rabbits where we are, but 
uh, we don't really have a lot of archaeology to get damaged, unfortunately. So no, I mean it's, it's a bit cruel. I always I like rabbits, so I don't like to see them as the enemy, but they are a, they're a very cute enemy, and um, particular sites like that, you know, they are an, an issue for the long. And that was an accurate part of the film too, is that it shows awareness of the the issue. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, that's wonderful. Well, on that note, I guess, uh, do you have any closing thoughts on, you know, the real site versus the movie? Just I, I think everyone needs to go and see the movie or go to see or sit at their computers and see the movie. I think everyone should watch this. Literally everyone in the universe should watch this film and uh, realise that it is perhaps the best ever attempt to tell a story about an archaeological dig. It wasn't a typical dig. It was an exceptional dig. It was a particular time in history. And it's it's not typical. It's not representative of anything or anyone. Um, it doesn't even tell us the full story of that site. In fact, the real story of the site, and I want a sequel, is the Carver years with me as a small sort of side role. Professor Carver, look what I found. Ah, Basil Brown was here. Remember him in film one? You know, no, I can imagine. Uh, I, I, I think there has to be a sequel or maybe two sequels, you know, make it a trilogy. Or what do they call it? Four films? A quadrilogy or something? I don't know. I could see multiple films doing this. I'm babbling now. Take away thought. Go see the film. It gives you a really good sense of why the site's important. Go to the site. I think this is going to be really important for the public-facing archaeology. This is going to be really important for Anglo-Saxon archaeology, the positive stories we can tell. And also, I think it's going to be really important for um, setting a new standard a gold standard for how archaeology and archaeology should be represented in popular culture as more than just grave robbers as and more than just dodging um fighting nancies and dodging pygmies or whatever it is you know the indiana jones stereotype i think it, it does set us on a new gold standard for how films should represent the exciting study of the human past through archaeology Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking about the film and about some of your experiences even, which is just super fascinating. Thank you, Rosie. It's been great. Thank you so very much, Professor Williams. This has been an incredibly fun episode to do with you. I appreciate all your insights into the archaeological dig, as well as an archaeologist's perspective on the movie, and your own experiences. I have linked Professor Williams's blog posts in the episode blog post, and of course his website is linked in the show notes. If you have a moment, I'd really appreciate if you can rate this podcast. Apparently it helps people find me. And of course, I'd like to thank my husband Jamie and our brood of kids our family, your friends, and the teachers who have helped me in this adventure through history. Un grand merci.